Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 14th, we are studying Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. As the first stages of Jesus' public ministry continue, he shows himself as one who has authority, both by his teaching and by his power over the unclean spirits. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's work day, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, it's actually very good to be back in a new year. So, And Mark's a great gospel to kind of do a new year, you know, see the kingdom of God spoken of and, and that good works of Jesus put into action by what he does. Mark really does hit the ground running as we were talking before we started recording today. He just jumps right in. So as we jump into these verses, we've looked at a little bit of Mark's gospel prior to this, the first 20 verses. Help us with the context. What do we need to know going into our text today? Okay, so we have Mark's gospel, and our listeners are probably familiar. You know, when you, when you open up the book of Mark, that you you just don't see the stuff that you're used to seeing, like when you read Matthew or, or Luke or John, right? You have, you have those introductory materials and, you know, coming off the Christmas season, uh, you know, we, we use those introductory things from Matthew talking about the birth of Jesus happening this way, or Luke that had all those Christmas narratives that we're, that we're used to hearing uh, in Advent and, and Christmas, and learning about the infant Jesus, and and then maybe Jesus as a twelve-year-old in the temple, and, and that. But Mark's gospel just doesn't have that, and so it really just kind of says, "Well, he, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God," and we're going to start with John the Baptizer, that forerunner that was foretold, you know, the the prophecy of Isaiah talking about this one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And so he talks about John, he gives a brief summary, much briefer than even Matthew and Luke or John, uh, John's gospel talking about John the Baptist's work. But Mark does tell us that, you, you know, you know, you got John preaching repentance, getting the people ready. He's talking about someone mightier than I am is coming, you know, and that's the big thing. He wants to get everybody ready for the appearance of that one who is greater than him. And so Mark says, okay, that's what John did. And then the one who was greater showed up. <laughs> and so he just kind of just lays it straight out there. You know, they got Jesus coming to where John was. He's baptized by John. He comes out of the water. The spirit comes down on him. He's called my beloved son by that voice that comes from heaven. Uh, the one with whom he's well pleased. And then he's straight into action. And so what we're going to be picking up today in our pericope is kind of that action starting. You, you have that brief introduction that Mark gives us, including Jesus going out, giving a summary statement about kind of Jesus' main work. That he's saying, 
you know, the times now, the time is, has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then Jesus calls some disciples to follow him. And then we're straight into Jesus in action now, showing himself to be that mightier one that John talked about. And so we're going to see really an exercise of authority that Jesus does in one of the first narratives that Mark gives us about Jesus' public ministry. Let's jump right in then to our text, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's our text for today, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Pastor Zimmerman, the text today opens that they went into Capernaum. So as you said, Jesus has just called his first disciples. We've seen Simon and Andrew, his brother. We've seen James and John, his brother. Now they go into Capernaum. Tell us a little bit about Capernaum. What do we know about this place? Well, Capernaum, we will find out, ends up being kind of kind of the home base of Jesus. Uh, at least in his Galilean ministry, which, of course, the early portions of the Gospels emphasize. Um, so not Jesus' work where he's going to be down in Jerusalem, you know, not the Holy Week events and things like that, which come, which come much later. But the first parts of our Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, emphasize Jesus' work happening in this northern region of Galilee. And Capernaum is one of the more significant towns, or you might call it city, uh, in Galilee. We might recall that when we talk about the geography of Israel, you know, Jerusalem is the big city. That, that's, that's, that's where all kind of the activity is. And then you do have some cities on the coast, which are somewhat larger. But Galilee is always seeming of this kind of rural setting, right? You know, it's going to be in the hills of Galilee where Jesus can gather large crowds together. In fact, you will have uh, later on an incident where, you know, you get this big crowd and they don't have food and they say, well, we can't even send them into towns to get something to eat because there just aren't any. So you have this kind of more rural part, but Capernaum appears to be a significant town or city in that rural part of Israel. In fact, we have a little bit of details about it uh, that, that we find in the scriptures. It's not actually mentioned in the Old Testament, which is kind of interesting. You know, so sometimes when you read through the Old Testament, you get these, um, 
geography place names, and then you find them in the New Testament as well. But Capernaum's not one of them. Yet, in the details given in the Gospels, we learn a little bit about it. Uh, we, we learn that it's a place where there's tax collection going on, or kind of customs taxes. In fact, that will be in Mark chapter 2. That's where Jesus will call Levi, away from the, the tax work to be a disciple. Um, apparently, there's uh, some Roman troops stationed there because Jesus deals with a centurion there. And then in John's gospel, there's even mention of a royal official that seems to be based in Capernaum. Well, when you kind of have those things put together, you realize Capernaum's not just, you know, like a, you know, a, 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 an intersection in the middle of nowhere kind of town. You know, one horse town, is, as some of us used to call those places, or, or one stoplight town. <laughs> Not, or in Iowa, they had places to even have stoplights, you know. Just, <laughs> in fact, you have like whole counties without stoplights. But this is not one of those. So it's don't think of it as like a, necessarily a metropolis or anything like that. But you think of almost like our, even some of our listeners in places where you might have like a county seat, mm-hmm. where you got like a courthouse and things like that. Right. So it's kind of that sort of significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it would be the type of town that would draw some of the smaller outlying, those one-horse towns that you were talking about. This would be where they go to town. That's kind of the the feel that I'm I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah, that's a good way of good, good way of putting it. And uh, it's it's seaside, or eh, I guess lakeside. We would say Sea of Galilee is a lake, you know. But um, and we learn we'll learn a little bit later in chapter one. It's it's where uh, Simon and Andrew are based. So Jesus, um, okay. So yeah. we, we've got a, a, a reasonable sized town where Jesus is going to use as a base for his ministry. So we're going to encounter this town throughout this first part of Jesus' ministry. His part of ministry in the northern part up in Galilee. And in this text, they go into Capernaum, and the first thing they do is it's the Sabbath, and he goes to the synagogue. Now, these Sabbath, synagogue, these are words that I think we hear a lot in church, Pastor Zimmerman, but we don't always take the time to make sure we all understand what we're talking about. So what happens in a synagogue on the Sabbath? Okay, great question. And it's it's good that we just don't breeze over those vocabulary terms because they they are they are really more important than we sometimes uh, remember <laughs> especially some of us who are so used to just throwing them out there right. <laughs> so the problem you have in Israel is you have all the prescribed worship that's supposed to happen at the temple down in Jerusalem but if you don't live near the temple what do you do for worship? Well, you don't do sacrifices because that, that's, that's prescribed for the temple only or, or the tabernacle earlier before the temple was built. But you do have this holy day that the Lord has set aside, the Sabbath, the, the, the seventh day of the week. And so you're supposed to set that aside for him. So that means you're not supposed to be doing work. Um, and you're supposed to have your mind set on the Lord's law, the Lord's words that he has spoken to you, remembering who he is and what he has done for you. Now, part of what develops is this idea of having multiple people synagoguing, <laughs> uh, to try to make it literal. They are coming together 
in order to do things that would allow them to remember who they are as Yahweh's, the Lord's people. So you would gather in a building with other Jewish people. In this case, it's going to be primarily Jewish people in Capernaum. But if you were living like in a foreign country, you might not have a big Jewish community. But you would gather together with your fellow believers living in your community, and you would have prayers, you'd have blessings, you'd hear readings from the books of Moses, you'd have readings from the books of the prophets, you would praise psalms together, and you would have people preaching on these scriptural texts. But the people preaching are not the priests from Jerusalem, because they're down there. It would be governed by a ruler or elder of the people who are, who's in your community. And you would have people assigned to read. Um, and, in fact, if you had people who would be competent in reading and competent in the knowledge of the scriptures, you might invite them to actually kind of give a homily or a message about these holy words of God that you have heard, which define who God is and define you and your relationship to him. Is that what's happening here with Jesus then? Is he this invited teacher who is reading and then going to give a, a meditation on the scriptures? So it's kind of a question of... of you know, how has he gotten into this community to do this? And so there's, there's kind of a good question. We know that Jesus would have been raised in this uh, because we have the description of like Mary and Joseph being devout and pious people. Uh, it's mentioned as in the Gospels as being his custom to go to the synagogues. There's a good chance kind of trying to read into the text a little bit here because Mark doesn't supply a whole lot of background, it's quite possible that Jesus is familiar with this city of Capernaum and might be known in the city of Capernaum as a person who is competent to read and to teach. We do know from some of the other records in the Gospels that Jesus is competent in reading. Um, in fact, we have other incidents where he reads in synagogues. And in fact, he, he picks up the place and says, yeah, and this is happening right in your sight. <laughs> um, the, the text that, that we just read, the prophetic text that was just read. So it's very possible he's not actually a stranger uh, to these people at Capernaum, but is known to them as someone who is competent to teach and to read. But then Jesus is going to do something different when he actually does teach, which the people are going to notice. Mm. One one thought on the question of, of his teaching and how well-known he might be. Mark has told us in 14 and 15 of this chapter, those two verses, that Jesus has begun to proclaim or to preach the gospel, and we received that summary of what his preaching was. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Does that public preaching that Jesus has been doing, presumably in this area— does that relate to the teaching that he's doing here in verse 21? It's possible. 
uh, is, is the kind of the question is trying to figure out what Mark is doing with verses 14 and 15. Is he kind of giving this as a summary of kind of the basics of Jesus' ministry, kind of setting it in relationship that John's been arrested, and so Jesus is now here in Galilee, and he's kind of taking up the mantle of John, um, and kind of giving you a basic kind of like um, epitome, if you will, of what you're going to hear now in the next several chapters, or is he actually kind of just kind of say that Jesus was around here already doing this, and now I'm giving you kind of a details about it, which, which actually kind of makes sense, that it's not just that this is the first time he's been doing such proclaiming the gospel or preaching, but that this incident at Capernaum is going to be maybe the first time where Jesus demonstrates something different uh, in his preaching and teaching than, than um, maybe in other times before he was baptized. Um, yeah, it's hard to say exactly what Mark is doing, though. Well, in verse 22, as you pointed out, Mark does highlight for us the reaction of the people there at the synagogue and how they respond to his teaching first and foremost. And maybe we should just pause and point that out as well, that notice that Mark highlights Jesus' teaching. We've made reference on this show previously looking at the Gospel of Mark, that Mark presents Jesus in action. He does a lot of stuff, and you don't get as many words in red, if you can say it that way, as you do in some of the other Gospel accounts. And yet, here at the outset of his public ministry, Jesus is highlighted as teaching. And it says that the people there in Capernaum at the synagogue were astonished because Jesus was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribe. So, What's the force of this authority, and what makes what makes Jesus teaching different than the scribes? Is it content? Is it style? Is it some of both? What's going on here? It's going to be kind of. I think we kind of say it's sort of kind of both, but the emphasis I go, I would place more on content than style, and trying to explain what I mean by that. There are records of people teaching where you would go ahead and have a scripture read, a passage of scripture read. And then you would have people who were studied in what the rabbinic literature said about these things. And there would be kind of citation of that. So you might have a person come up. So we can kind of imagine ourselves in the synagogue and someone reads, you know, maybe a portion of the book of Moses. So maybe something to do with, um, you know, part of the law of God. And uh, maybe some of the instructions about how you are to interact with your neighbor when you have like a property dispute, right? You know, like the book of Leviticus has all this sort of things spelled out. And so you would read it and you would hear it. And so now you might have a person getting up and teaching about it. And so you would then have them relaying the commentary of different teachers about that text. So you would say, you know, and this is what, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says about this. And so we should, you know, kind of take that wisdom, and that's how we should interact with our neighbors when, you know, our, our cow goes into their lawn and stuff like that. 
what you get here is a style, but the style is really kind of focused on the content of repeating maybe what's been handed down by people. You get the impression that when Jesus is teaching here, that he'll do that. Like we see a little bit on the Sermon on the Mount that way in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus will say, you know, you had heard it's been said this. And then, but now I tell you something slightly different. And it's not where Jesus' teaching is dependent on the comments of other people, but rather he's just spelling out what the scripture means. And there is an authority behind this because of who Jesus is. Jesus is not a student of the scriptures who's going to relate what he has learned from studying them, although he could do that as, as a human being, as a man, a devout, pious Hebrew man who is raised in that. But when you have the actual author of the book, when you have him as the Yahweh, the Lord in the flesh incarnate, the one who gave those words to Moses, the one, the one who gave the words to the prophets, when he speaks on something, he doesn't have to go on and tell you, like, and here's what a whole school of rabbis said about this. He can just speak about, this is the Lord's words because they're my words. You've got, it's like when you go to a place and you have the author of a book talking about the book he wrote, compared to maybe reading about like you know, uh, articles from literary critics on it, which is to it's just totally different. And these are not just human books. These are the words of the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who led Moses standing right there and telling you um, uh, what God's will is. And that difference is there in this text, even without recognizing, as we will much later in Mark's gospel, that the scribes tend to be opposed to Jesus. We'll, we'll see them pop up again and again in the gospel of Mark, and they're almost always opposed to Jesus. But even without that negative connotation toward the scribes, the point that you're making is very well said. Even, even think about the way that the prophets in the Old Testament would write and speak. They would start what they would write with something like, thus says the Lord, and then they would write what the Lord says. When Jesus speaks in the Gospels, and again, to, to think forward and into other Gospels as well, you'll hear him say things like, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say. He doesn't need to say, thus says the Lord, because he is the Lord saying it. And, and yes. that authority comes through right here already. Yes, and, and going back to tie it into Mark's gospel here, you know, going through those prophetic statements, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, right? Mm. It's like, yes, it's exactly what happened earlier in Mark's gospel when the Spirit, you know, the, the Spirit descends on him like a dove and the voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son with whom I, I am well pleased. Yes, he's, he's already gotten that. Yeah, so so it's, it's, always, it's actually in the gospel text when you don't, just separate the verses, you know, because we always do these pericopes. But when you kind of take all of Mass, uh, all of Mark one as a whole, you've seen it already. Um, John came to fulfill what was said by the prophet. 
You know, the prophet spoke about him, foretold him. Jesus actually has the spirit of the Lord come down to him right there. The spirit who drives him into the wilderness, the spirit who is uh, who's, who's driving his teaching. Um, and, and, and not to divorce, you know, the, the, the you know, the, you have the, the persons of the Trinity are working collaboratively, as we say, you know, uh, the, the whole Holy Trinity, triune God is working here uh, with, with Jesus' actions. Seeing the Spirit rest on Jesus at his baptism, I think is a really important point to make. As you said, that connects us back to the text from Isaiah that Mark quoted and other texts from Isaiah that deal with the coming of the Christ. We studied a bunch of those during the season of Advent here on Sharper Iron, and particularly jumped into my mind was Isaiah chapter 11, where the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse, and and there the prophet Isaiah reminds us, he teaches us, how this Christ will work through his word. Among other things, he says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So this one who's been anointed with the Spirit there in Isaiah is the one who's going to work through the preaching of his word. And here we are in Mark's gospel seeing how the Spirit has come down upon Jesus in his baptism, and now he's doing in the power of the Spirit, that preaching that Isaiah promised, and he's doing it with the authority of God himself. And and all of this, again, before we see Jesus do something, he is doing something in his teaching. Yes, yes. And and this is this is critical that we talk about, you know, the activity we always want to talk about, like the, like the you know, uh, the kinetic sort of things Jesus does. Uh, and it's like, well, you know, when he speaks, things happen, just just like the way Genesis 1 began, right? The Lord speaks and things happen. And here is the Lord incarnate speaking. Here is the Lord's anointed, the one who comes with all of Yahweh's authority. And when he speaks, it's not idle words. It's, it's not empty, you know, just, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pious ideas and thoughts and wishes. No, it is the word of God that accomplishes what it says. It is acting. The word is doing something. Um, and that's the hope that we have even now. You know, centuries later, when we have those words of Christ coming to us, that they do what they say, and that's 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 what our whole hope in and um, you know our trust in the church's activity is. It, it's it's not you know that we just go through rituals of some sort, but it's the fact that God is speaking here, who says, "I have baptized you. I have absolved you. I have." fed you. I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you, right? You know, and and it does what God says. Yeah, that's the authority of Jesus' word that we're seeing in this text. As he's teaching, he's going to keep revealing that authority as the text continues, which we will pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 14th. We're studying Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. We've got Pastor Luke Zimmerman with us. He serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we've been talking about Jesus' authority, how he acts, he does in his teaching as the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And now in this synagogue, in verse 23, there comes one with an unclean spirit. Take us into to what happens now. This is where the, quote, action starts in verse 23. Okay, so here's kind of the thing where when we're reading through this, what we probably don't want to do with verse 23 is suggest like Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden this man showed up with the unclean spirit as much as perhaps Mark is kind of telling you these things are happening kind of at the same time. When Jesus is in the synagogue, there is this man with the unclean spirit. The problem with this man, the unclean spirit, is he's not where he's supposed to be. You have this unclean spirit in a holy place, a place set aside for the Lord's work on this holy day, on this day set apart for the Lord and his work. And it's bound to bring a confrontation when the clean and holy encounter the unclean and unholy, there is going to be an issue. Uh, we can think of this in the um, Old Testament, you know, uh, Isaiah in his call to be a prophet, right? When he sees himself in the, in the vision in the holy place of God, and he realizes, I'm unclean, right? And that's bad. Uh, later on, we'll have like the great catch of fish, and uh, Peter will say, you know, get, get away from me because I'm an unclean person, right? A, a, a sinful man. And so here... You're going to have this confrontation between the Holy One, the, the Holy One of God, the one who is, who, who is anointed with the Spirit, the, the Lord's anointed Messiah, who is the Lord incarnate, this great mystery of the incarnation, the epitome of holiness. And now a man who is really kind of like the epitome of the opposite of that, one who is filled with an unclean spirit. Uh, one who is now in that condition directly opposed to Jesus. He's, uh, he's not aligned with Jesus at all, and so there's going to be a confrontation between those two. How should we understand that he has an unclean spirit? I, I think we are familiar with, if we've been listening in, in church to the various readings, the, the idea of demonic possession. Here Mark calls this someone with an unclean spirit. Is that the same thing? And, and if so, then what's the significance of saying he's an unclean spirit? Okay. It appears that when you read through Mark that he uses that term, um, like unclean spirit and demons, um, as synonyms. Um, in, in fact, it, in some places where it kind of goes back and forth, even in the same um, kind of text. 
And so you would talk about a person who has now been occupied or we can take, say possessed. Um, kind of, if you want to think of it this way, we talk about the, the, the Christian who is filled with the spirit, right? Uh, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And here you have a person who's the exact opposite of that. Uh, kind, of, kind of like the complete flip side of it. And so he has got a problem, I would say, maybe even more than just like a person who happens to be like an unbeliever. You have a person who is really associated and aligned with, with, with the demonic, that which is completely opposed to God, under the special influence of this spirit that is opposed to God. Uh, so I, I think that um, kind of sets the situation that this man is in. And so, um, now what is the Holy One of God going to do? What is he meant to do with the demonic and those which are opposed to him, directly opposed to him? Yeah, the, the matter of calling it, a, calling it an unclean spirit, I think, does set the stage for this confrontation between the unclean spirit who has possessed this man, on the one hand, and Jesus, who is the Holy One of God, as the demon will actually label him, as, as we get to that verse. Now, it is the unclean spirit who actually picks the fight, it seems. He, he's the one that starts the conversation. This isn't Jesus. Well, at least it doesn't seem that Jesus is the one who seeks the unclean spirit out. The reverse is true. The unclean spirit comes at Jesus, although the unclean spirit knows who's going to win already, it seems. I, any thoughts on that, Pastor Zimmerman? Why is the unclean spirit coming at Jesus? That, that's a, it's kind of an interesting question about what, you know, don't you know what's supposed to happen to you, right? Which this um, unclean spirit knows, right? Or is asking even the question, have you come to destroy us? And kind of the answer is, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yes, but maybe not exactly at this point. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you've got you've got this question about um, when, when you have a person basically acknowledging you're on opposite teams, and that that's a bit trite. I mean, it's more in teams, uh, opposite gangs, you know, yeah. uh, op opposite associations like that. that that's a little more uh, uh, opposite mob groups, you know, and and they know. They do not belong together. They cannot. They cannot mutually dwell together yeah. in a, any sort of peaceable way. And so you have the, the the unclean spirit basically wanting basically Jesus to to leave them alone. You know. Uh, you know. I don't know if he's like stumbled into this or if he's directly, you know, just kind of been drawn to this. Uh, so that Jesus could manifest, uh, you know, his authority, which uh, it could be possible, or, or is it like one of these things where you have, uh, it, you know, sometimes I watch those uh, videos of like safaris where you have like, you know, there's like hyenas chasing a, like a gazelle or something, and they and they run right into a lion, you know, pride. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, is it something like that? I, I don't know. It's not exactly told why or how kind of the machinations, see how he got there, other than he is there. Um, and maybe kind of like that he's been 
kind of summoned there in a way so that Jesus can demonstrate himself being the Holy One of God, which which could be. I, I think that it was Pastor Brian Wolfmuller who I heard say it this way, that in the Gospels, it's almost like Jesus is the light that draws all the mosquitoes to it. And, and that's kind of what you see with the de- the demons sort of, it's like they can't help but be drawn toward this light, even though that light is going to destroy them, as as we see here. Uh, and I, th- I think it was Pastor Wolfmuller who's the one who who said it that way, which I thought was a, a helpful image to put in, yeah. in, in at least yeah. in my mind. I, I appreciate the way you, you said it about the, the mob boss or the gang with this question that, you know, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Almost like, what are you doing on my turf, Jesus? Mm-hmm. Is, is something something like that. And and what Jesus is going to show, and I think this does relate to the summary that you get of Jesus preaching that we were talking about earlier back in verse 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand. What Jesus is is coming to show is, is that he's he's claiming this territory as his own. What the yes. unclean spirit, what the demon would say, this belongs to us, Jesus is coming saying, no, it belongs to God, and I'm going to reclaim this territory. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, we, we, you see this ultimately um, pulling in the, the statement from John's gospel about the ruler of this world being cast mm-hmm. out. And this is the whole kind of thing of the, the usurpers and the usurpers' minions are being driven out because they don't rightly belong there. It takes, I mean, if you want to talk about like a bit of guts, you know, of all out of all the places, you might say a kind of like, why are you here on my turf in a synagogue? I mean, yeah. an, unco- an unclean spirit's going to claim that as his own. I mean, that's you know, yeah, gutsy or other phrases we might use besides gutsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like no, no, the world is not yours. You might be running the thing now, but you're running it as usurpers. You're running it as people who do not rightly have this rule. I do rightly have this rule. I am the Lord's anointed. I am the Lord's Messiah. I am bringing the kingdom of God in. And I'm gathering people under my rule, under 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 my influence, not under your influence anymore, which will just lead to their destruction. You know, and Jesus kind of coming in and setting things right. Um you know, and that's kind of the, you know, our, our pop culture sees this. And, you know, it's kind of the, the, the question in, in the movies of, you know, that, that's, that's part of the thing, even like in the Lord of the Rings idea, you know, the rightful heir coming uh, in some of our Westerns, right, where, where gangs are running the town and now a marshal comes in. And, and it's like, yeah, those seem like, you know, maybe trite examples to pull out, but they really are reflections of the great truth here. Of there is a rule, there is an authority. It is Yahweh, the Creator's authority. It's God's authority, and Jesus is coming to bring that to a world that rebelled against it and is under the influence and power of these things which are opposed to Him, which is opposed to this actually good and gracious will of God. But but we who are under that influence of the evil and the unclean don't recognize the Lord's law as good and gracious. 
No, we think it's terrible. We kind of like being in the mess. But now when that light of truth comes with power and authority to set things right, it, it, it lets the blind see. It frees us from this deception that the evil one brings to us. And it brings us under the rightful rule of God himself. This demon knows who Jesus is, the Holy One of God. And this is one of the things that we'll see throughout Mark's Gospel, is that demons will at least say the right words when it comes to Jesus, though we know they don't believe them. But demons will speak that truth, even though none of the human interactors with Jesus get it until, as we've said already previously on this show, until the very end when the centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God at his crucifixion. Mm -hmm. But take us into this this, I, I don't want to call it a confession, this truth that the demon speaks about Jesus, that he is the Holy One of God. Okay, it's a statement of fact, and I think maybe that's the, the term we can use, um, which is, is a confession in the sense of it is a statement of truth and fact. It is not of any sort of trust or reliance on which this unclean spirit will be saved, because that's not meant for it. However, what he says will become the content of the confession of the people who will be saved by what this Holy One of God, this Jesus of Nazareth, does. Where you have him stating what is factual, that's going to be... Um, it's the truth that is going to be revealed as Jesus accomplishes all that he has been sent to do as the Lord's Messiah, as the Lord's anointed, his Holy One. And when it is accomplished and that good news is sent out with the power of the Spirit that enlightens and renews and regenerates, people will be led to receive that truth and to trust it and rely on it. But you can't have that really fully done until Jesus accomplishes all the things that the Christ, the Holy One of God, is supposed to do. In fact, that's going to be one of the bigger incidents when even Peter makes a confession about Jesus being the Holy One, about being the Christ. And then when Jesus says, well, here's what the Christ has to do, Peter's like, "That no, 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 that's wrong. It's like, well, no, it actually is right. But to understand me to be the Holy One of God, you have to receive me um, as the one who fulfills all the things the Lord has said that his holy anointed one would do, which will include his suffering, his being rejected by many of the leaders and many of the people, uh, being crucified, dying, and rising to life again. So Jesus then, having been confronted by this unclean spirit who has challenged Jesus and yet recognizes that Jesus is going to be the one to destroy him, and I think it's significant, you know, have you come to destroy us, that this unclean spirit who is possessing this man is working in league with others, with other unclean mm -hmm. spirits, ultimately with the prince of demons, which we'll talk about when we get to Mark chapter 3, and I mean, this, this whole conflict that Jesus has with demons and unclean spirits and Satan himself really dominates 
many parts of the Gospel of Mark. It comes to a head in chapter 3, as we'll see. Right now, with this one unclean spirit, Jesus rebukes him. He speaks, be silent, come out of him, and the unclean spirit does. Take us into the, the actual exorcism that Jesus does here. All right, so the exorcism is like not a whole bunch of ritual of any sort, as much as Jesus deals with this unclean spirit by rebuking it and giving it a command which bears all the authority of the Holy One of God. And as we said earlier in in our broadcast, when God speaks, the things he says to happen actually happen. When the Lord speaks authoritatively and gives commands to his creation, to his creatures, which in, include the demonic, they, they are fallen creatures of God. They, they didn't make themselves, and it's not that Satan made them or you know anything like that. Or, and don't have the idea of Satan being like his own demigod or, or creator like that. Um, so when the Lord speaks to these fallen creatures, these, these you know, angelic spiritual creatures which have rebelled against him, when he gives his subjugating command and says, shut up, basically, that's what the be silent is, you know, you zip it, say no more things, and you leave that man, you come out of that man because of who Jesus is. Uh, the, being the Holy One of God, exercising the authority which he has been given as the Lord's anointed, being, being the incarnate Lord, the Lord in the flesh, this creature is compelled to obey him. And he does. And, you know, he convulses the man, he cries out with a loud voice, but he comes out of the man. And Jesus now has demonstrated this... Um, power over the unclean spirits um, with like not incantations, not rituals, not not props of any sort, um, but simply by telling it to leave and doing something that no one else was really doing, which is because Jesus can do things which no one else can do because of his identity, who he is. Yeah, when Jesus casts out demons, he never, he never, if I can say this, like, he never says the magic words. <laughs> There's not <laughs> some sort of ritual, as you said, that he has to do as if the ritual or as if the, the magic has some kind of power over these demons. Rather, Jesus simply speaks with authority because he is the word, and he's got that authority. And I, I think, Mark, you know, he puts these two things side by side for us because they happened together, but also to illustrate that that authority of Jesus' teaching. As we were saying earlier, when Jesus teaches, before you get to the, the demon possession and the exorcism, Jesus is teaching, and that is him doing something. And putting it side by side with the exorcism, I think, just helps to under, under uh, not uh, build that up for us in our minds, that they go together. Jesus' word has authority, so that when he's teaching us, even if it's not something as spectacular-looking as an exorcism, say, he is, in fact, doing something. And it, it seems that the people at least start to put that together, or they start to ask questions that might lead them to make those conclusions. They're amazed again, the text says, and now they're questioning among themselves, What's going on? We've got this new teaching with authority, 
and he even commands the unclean spirits. Take us into the the reaction of the folks there in the synagogue. Right. So it's kind of the question. I I, I like kind of how you put it. it he, he's de- he's demonstrating the same thing in both places. That when when he when he tells the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and it happens, he has now delivered that man from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God, or under his under his rule. Um, which is dramatic, but that's really the same thing he was doing when he was teaching on whatever the scripture readings of that day were in that synagogue and, and revealing the great truth that the Lord had given in those words that those who might hear it might become wise to salvation. And that's what he's going to do throughout his ministry, and that's what he's going to send people out in the world then to bring that record of his words and deeds out so that others might be saved. So the kind of the question is, when you're seeing this kind of for the first time, though, you know, the people in the synagogue, they're like, okay, this is a new one. We've, I mean, you can, have, you can imagine people who have lived there for years or decades, and they had gone to the synagogue week after week after week for you know their whole lifetime and they've not witnessed something like this and it's a and it's triggering in their mind there is something different about this jesus of nazareth what exactly it is yet might not be figured out and it's going to be unfolded as jesus goes about his work you know fulfilling the prophetic statements made about the Messiah in the Old Testament, all these words that the Lord had laid down saying, this is what my anointed one will do. Uh, But it's not all been fully put out there, but there's enough of a marker down that this is different. Just who is this man standing in front of them is the question that they're supposed to be, you know, kind of cogitating about Mm. And now the question is going to be, uh, where are we going with this? Where are we? Where? What is this Jesus bringing? What is his identity to ultimately come to answer the question that Jesus himself will pose? Who do you say I am? Which is kind of the critical question of, of, of the Gospels. And it's the question that Mark's already answered at the very beginning. This mm-hmm. is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That That's where the, the gospel is going to take us. And it's going to take us to that answer, again, when we see Jesus on the cross, dying there for our sins. Now, before you get there, people are asking the questions, but that doesn't stop the news from spreading. Take us into that very last verse of this text. All right. So at the, at the very least, they know there is something here in Capernaum that we just don't normally have. And, and, and that gets spread out in the areas around uh, Capernaum. The, um, it's kind of a question about the surrounding region of Galilee. What, you know, does that mean like everywhere in Galilee here or just maybe that portion of Galilee around Capernaum? But it's not going to be long before Jesus then will go out to all these other cities of Galilee so much so that he won't be able to even go into like, any town publicly without drawing a crowd. So this is like the initial kind of like um, kind of throwing a rock into a pond, right? And kind of the initial wave goes out, you know, the, uh, and this is what's happening. A, a rock has been dropped in the pond of, um, 
of Galilee's like spiritual community here among the community of Israelites that there is someone here who is carrying an authority we don't usually see. He teaches differently than we usually hear. He has exercise over you know, exercise authority and power over the unclean spirits, the demonic. Uh, is this the Lord visiting his people? And the answer is yes, but we're going to be not just visiting his people like when he sent prophets or things. It's going to be, this is actually the Lord himself, but it's going to take a while until that conclusion can be fully made. Pastor Zimmerman, we've got about three minutes here on the morning. Help us wrap things up. Point us to Christ crucified and risen in this text. Oh, okay. Christ crucified and risen in this text. We want to note that this text is emphasizing Jesus' identity as the Messiah, which is important, first off. This is demonstrated by what he does in that synagogue. But that authority and power he carries as the Lord's Christ is still present in the places where we gather. And I, this is where we might want to talk about just simply like the application of this text to our day. We have an astonishing teaching that's come to us. This record of Jesus, who is the Holy One of God, who is God in the flesh, who has come with all the authority and power of God himself to our world, a world that has been tainted by the darkness of sin and death and lies and deception. And he brings his power into this world to redeem us and free us from that. That's what he has done. And it is astonishing because what, what he says and how it's going to happen is not going to be in the way that we might think it should happen. It's not going to be in the way that we invent. It's not even going to be in the way of religious wisdom, in the, in the sense of the way the world has it. But he is there with his authority now when he brings that gospel message through his sent ones, through the ministers of the church and that gospel they bring, that the Holy One of God came, he was in our world, he died, he rose to life again, and now he is bringing his power and authority to this location so that you might be redeemed, so that you might benefit from what he's brought. He's not come to destroy us. He's come to redeem us. He's come to free us from the powers of the, the demonic and evil so that we might live in the kingdom of God that he has brought to our place and then be brought into the world to come where there will be nothing opposed to his authority, and it will all be totally clear exactly who this Jesus of Nazareth is. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is the pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Pastor Zimmerman, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. Glad to read through this text with you. Jesus comes with authority the authority of his word as he teaches, authority that extends even over demonic forces. And when he enters into enemy territory, he wins. His authority holds the day. He frees us from the powers of darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.